lovely to have some of our community here and some visitors and whatnot. I hope you feel hope you feel welcome. Um, hopefully, the people at your table are nice. I doubt they are, but they might be. We're not here to be nice, are we? Are we? Oh, we are. Excellent. Okay, I stand. I sit corrected. Um, today we're going to be talking about um, Advent and awkward banquets um, because we are no respecter of uh, custom here. Well, we're, mi- we're minor respecters of custom. So we're doing Advent, but we're starting it two weeks early because uh, everything we have to say takes a long time because we're a simple, we're a simple bunch. Um, you may have noticed, but things are often quite shit around here. And that's very deliberate so that you don't get tricked into thinking that this church is a service rather than a community of munted people. Um, that's all of us, and uh, it's not about a pretty, a pretty light. I mean, some are prettier than others, obviously. Thank you, Mitch. But, um, you know, it's not actually about this. It's about the way we get on during the week and whatnot. So, you know, this is just a small distraction from that. So, um, but we're going to be talking about Advent and awkward banquets. We're starting Advent a couple of weeks early because we have some things to say and discuss. Um, and we're worried that we won't be done by Christmas. I mean, our last series took us nine months, and um, the baby Jesus is coming sooner than that. No matter how long Mary crosses her legs, I'm not sure. <laughs> not sure she can hold on for that long. So we're going to be exploring together what um, peacemaking and reconciliation looks like. Um, it's going to be a very, very um, brief overview, but hopefully we'll give enough of a framework for us to chew on some stuff together and um, work out what it might look like for us. Um, for those of you who are on Facebook, <laughs> particularly over the plebiscite, um, you may have noticed that humans aren't very good with conflict <laughs> in general. Um, we're not super awesome at negotiating differences and tension. Um, some are better than others, but for the most part, we're a mess. And this may shock you, but the Christian community is an embarrassment. Um, <laughs> I know, some of you are very surprised. You had a very high view of the church before the plebiscite, but now, you know, it's very much disappointed you. Um, if you were to play a small word association game between, um, with, and, and someone said the word Christian, the first thing that came to mind wouldn't be peacemaker <laughs> or reconciler or even necessarily kind, which is a shame. And it's unsurprising but it's still embarrassing. And it's really disappointing because the church has had a couple of thousand years to practice this stuff. Um, and the early church considered themselves communities of reconciliation, communities of peacemaking. And this doesn't mean that they got it right all the time, but at least they were embarrassed when they didn't. So we're hope- hopefully we're going to be ushering in a new era of shame into the church. Um, that's a joke for those of you who are new. Pretty much don't believe anything I say is the key. Take your sarcastometer and tune it in. I'm going to read from Ephesians. So you've got these churches which are forming. This is not the verse. I'm just giving a little preamble. Um, you've got these churches that are forming, and they're full of um, people from all over the place. And for the first time, um, Jews and Gentiles are gathering together under one roof and under one God. Um, 
without the aid of circumcision. And it's controversial and it's difficult. And these groups of people have seen each other as enemies, but God has called them together for peace. This is what Paul's saying. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. Have been brought near. Have been brought near. That's the Gentiles, by the way. Um, by the blood of Christ. For Christ is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of hostility that kept us apart. In his own flesh, Christ abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances in order to make the two into one new person, thus establishing peace and reconciling us all to God in one body through the cross, which put to death the enmity between us. Christ came and announced the good news of peace to you who are far away and to those of you who are near. For through Christ we, have, we all have access in one spirit to our God. This means that you are strangers and aliens to each other no longer. No, you are inclu- included in God's holy people and are members of the household of God. For Paul, we were all once opposed to God and the ways of the kingdom. Yet God, driven by love and at great cost, dwelt among us to draw us near and make peace and adopt us into the same family. And therefore, for Paul to not extend that peace to others around us means that we've missed the point altogether. The end game in the Christian vision of peace is a meal, a banquet, where all of humanity dines together. And if we're still enemies when we're dining together, for those of you who have siblings and have fought with them during the day, saying every imaginative thing to each other and throwing whatever is at hand, to sit down at the family dinner table that evening can be rather awkward. Winning in kingdom terms is to become brothers and sisters, not conquerors and conquered. It makes me wonder how the primary lens of so much of the church these days seems to be defenders of truth rather than agents of reconciliation. So we're coming into Advent, and we're exploring what tools are available to us in the story of Advent for making peace, for being people of reconciliation. Advent, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is the season each year where the church remembers the story of Jesus coming to the world. It's everyone's favorite Jesus, the baby Jesus. So meek and mild. Advent is about retelling the story of his birth, remembering, anticipating, and waiting for what God might be doing in our midst. When Luke introduces the story, Luke, right near the start, introduces a whole swarm of angels turning up to some incredibly scared shepherds who were just minding their own business and sheep. And suddenly this heavenly host shows up, um, as told in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Um, and they declare peace on earth. And last year we did this like little synopsis of a bunch of Christmas carols looking for how theologically inaccurate they are and how inspiring some of them are as well. And during that, it just struck me how many of them are about peace. And um, we also tore the crap out of um, peaceful nativity scenes as well. But um, I've got one up here. Oh. Isn't that lovely? 
So between carols and nativity scenes, you've got all of these kind of, I don't know, saccharine and trite, peaceful, blissful scenes, which seem so impotent, but there's something in them which still strikes a chord. There's something about this, I don't know, nostalgic, like false nostalgia, but nostalgic hope that at one point in history, everything was okay for a bit. And I think all of us carry that within us, this sense of hope that one day conflict might actually be over, that one day there might actually be peace. Yet, we seem so unable to even get close to making it happen. It's like there's this universal human longing for a scene like this, yet something about our experience of the world makes us incredibly uncomfortable with scenes like this because it seems so trite and so false. But the biblical vision, again, points us towards that kind of hope, that one day there will be peace. So we're going to very quickly sketch out two visions of peace this morning that run through Scripture, and I'd say that run through us as well. Because not all peace is the same kind of peace, and not every pathway to peace is the same, and not every result of peace looks the same. And I know our job here, part of our job is to bore you by saying the same thing over and over again in different ways. Um, and you've heard, probably heard a bit of this before if you've been around for a while, but to understand the nativity story, to understand what it is about the scriptures that we read that make them so striking, you, you have to understand a little bit of the context that they were written from. And so for us as people who, most of us, aren't Jewish, um, don't really have a very good grasp on first century Palestine and the expectation of a Messiah coming. Israel was a nation that was yet again held captive under foreign rule. And they longed for Yahweh to put things right as promised. If you track the story of Israel, for those of you who are brave enough to delve into the Old Testament, um, it's basically this runt nation (laughs) that just gets kicked about and taken over time and time again by the other bully nations who are much bigger and stronger. And then for a little while there, they like get semi-powerful and then get really cocky about it um, and kind of become pricks and then get taken over again by the Assyrians, <laughs> or no, the Babylonians that time. And so the whole story is the story of this kind of nation with the Messiah complex um, of being these chosen people um, who God is going to favor and they're going to rule the world one day and everything's going to be okay. And then time and time again, they just get beaten up and have their lunch money stolen. And as you can imagine, they get really frustrated by this. The cry is always, God, you said you chose us. You said you're mightier than the other gods. You said that one day, you know, like all of the nations would know you through us, yet here we are again, taken off into slavery, humiliated, kicked about. And we know it's probably our fault because, you know, we didn't do things right, but still, when are you going to show up? And so by the kind of fourth or fifth exile from their land, which was supposed to be their home, 
they start to long for a Messiah, for this one man, of course, that would come, um, that would come and deliver them and start and usher in a new reign of peace. And through Scripture, there's these kind of two dueling narratives of what that peace will be like. One, there's this kind of peace of harmony where people will, you know, beat their swords into plowshares, farming equipment, for those of you from the shitty. Um, They'll beat their swords into plowshares and the lion would lay down with the lamb and there would be this sense of harmony But for the others, and this is the majority story, and it certainly was the majority story for those who are waiting for Messiah to come in Jesus' day. When you've been beaten up a lot of times and you're just waiting for puberty to hit, this is kind of grandiose visions of just you wait. One day, my big brother will come. And he's going to smash the crap out of all of you. And I'm going to be king of the school. That's pretty much the vision for Messiah that was widely held at the time among Israel. So you've got these people waiting for this warrior king like King David to come and take them out from under the rule of the Romans. So the Romans um, let Israel stay in the land, but they had to pay taxes. They were supposed to be worshipping Caesar. Um, Most of them were getting taxed so heavily they had to give up their land. This proud people were just being slowly obliterated. And if you stood up against Caesar, you got crucified, you got humiliated. So, and we discussed this a couple of series ago, but Caesar, um, Rome had this thing called the Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome, which sounds really lovely, doesn't it? The peace of Rome. And basically it means we'll come in and conquer you and we'll build you aqueducts and we'll give you, you know, like a new tax system, which will make you really poor, but at least you get to stay on your land. You can worship your gods as long as you worship ours as well. And everything will be just fine. It'll be pretty crappy, but we won't kill you all. You can have peace as long as you go along with us. But if you stand up, if you fight back, it will crush you. And so Rome kind of painted this picture of freedom. You're all free. You all get to be Romans like us. But don't cross us or the army will come in and we will destroy you. So all throughout the early years of the rule of Rome, there's roads with crucifixes the whole way down them where they hung up those who stood up to Rome. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of crucifixes. Men with their sword arms chopped off. And so once you've been under that regime for a while, you can understand these kinds of masculine visions of brutality and revenge that when Messiah comes, we will get our own back 
and he will raise up an army and we'll have big swords and we'll get to punch the lights out of the Roman guards and all these nations that have like beaten us up for all these years and teased us. We're going to be able to rule over all of them and we'll be in charge and they'll be our servants and we can show them mercy if we want to or we can kick them in the teeth if we want to, but it's going to be us that's in charge. And there's something in all of us who's ever watched a bully movie on TV or in real life (laughs) that can resonate with that, right? That sense of going, there's justice. There's justice and conquering and giving back what was given. And the Messiah shows up as a baby and grows up and doesn't pick up a sword, but instead says, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. What? Can you see why those with these grandiose visions of revenge weren't that excited about Jesus? When God said, blessed are the peacemakers, when Jesus described peacemakers not as being people who made peace at the point of a sword like Rome, but who made peace by searching out the violence in their own heart, searching out the ways in which they excluded and marginalized others, who began by offering reconciliation. Why not everyone was all that excited? Instead of building an impenetrable fortress, separating those who were in and those who were out, Jesus began the slow work of breaking down walls of exclusion. Lepers, Samaritans, bleeding women were invited in. Two visions of peace. Two visions of peace, victory and vengeance. I've got to add, and vindication, but I thought three Vs is one V too many. Or reconciliation and restoration. I was going to add repentance, but three R's seemed like one R too many. We can get to that later in the series. It's jarring to think that as a church and as followers of Jesus, most often when we think about peace, we join ancient Israel in envisaging victory over our enemies rather than adoption into a common family. That winning doesn't look like dominance through violence. adoption into the same family. And what I've been thinking about during the plebiscite is with the words that have been spoken. 
Is it if your view to those you perceive as enemies is that you will love them into a place of adoption rather than maim them into a place of submission? If you envisage that the end goal is to all sit down at a common family table, you don't brutalize the people that you're trying to sit next to. And this is where I think all of us in micro and macro conflicts throughout our lives start off with the wrong vision of peace. That our vision is to be all-conquering heroes who will have subservient people at our feet. And so we're prepared to maim and brutalize and hurt and wound because it's the enemy that we're wounding and one day we'll rule over them. But if our vision is invitation to a common table, where to make peace is to work out a way of seeing the humanity of those that we really, really want to despise. If one day we will all sit across the table from each other and look each other in the eyes and see what we have done to each other, then we will act very differently in how we handle conflict. Conflict is going to happen. Disagreement is going to happen. If you think this church is wonderful, you're wrong. It's full of terrible, terrible people who will disagree with each other on all kinds of things, who will hurt and maim each other. But what happens after that? How do we make peace when we disagree? How do we listen to one another? How, in the process of negotiating conflict, which will happen? Peace is not about avoiding conflict always. It's not about suppression. Sometimes there's disagreement. But how we negotiate that disagreement, how we treat those we perceive as the other or as enemies, says a lot about the vision of peace that we have. And it embarrasses me. I mean, most of you don't want to be here either. But the idea of telling someone you you're a Christian before they get to know you. <laughs> Who would do that? <laughs> Until I know you well enough to see that there might be something different. To go out <laughs> and spend the first sentence of every, <laughs> for everyone you talk to that knows you're a Christian to apologize for the way the church has acted over this hideous vote. If only our vision of peace was one of love of the other rather than brutality and violence. So, our question is, what tools do we have in the story of Advent and the story of Jesus for making peace? Um, we're going to be discussing that over the next few weeks. But we're going to begin with a few things. Let's begin with a cry for justice, for peace, 
for God to show up, for God to involve us, to invite us in to the way of peace. Let's begin with repentance for loving vengeance and violence and victory and prosperity more than we love reconciliation and restoration. Let's begin with openness to what making peace might cost us, for how we might need to change. Let's begin with wonder at how God might show up, at what peacemaking might look like among us. Let's begin with a request for wisdom to discern when paying a price for, between paying a price for peace and becoming more cannon fodder for the violent. Let's begin with hope that swords might be turned into plowshares. Thank you.